this guy's built 400 self-storage facilities. He said, Joe, you could take a, a dart and throw it at the map of the United States and be successful and build and build a self-storage there. He said, but that's not the point, right? We want to find the top 10%, the top 15% of areas, locations, demographics, income levels to serve because the only difference between a really successful um, build and a, and a not so successful build is how long it takes to get the tenants in place. You know, when you spend eight to $12 million to build something, you don't want to wait two years to ramp it up. Your goal is to get it ramped up in, you know, six to 12 months. All right. Well, we have with us today, Joe Evangelisti, who I've been now talking to online for a little while. Uh, we're going to talk about real estate, specifically self-storage. So Joe, you went from the Navy. Again, thank you for your service. And it's about 15 years now that you've been doing, you know, you're mostly known, like you said, for self-storage. I think you said about 80% of your, your business is in that. And I'll tell everyone a little funny story. Just a couple weeks ago, um, I've been, Joe and I have been talking to each other on Facebook for quite some time. I'm not sure how we got connected, but someone, you know, you had recently posted, just closed a $23 million deal. And someone underneath that was that like, great, I just closed a two million and now I feel like crap. And I, that caught my attention. Twenty three million is a big number. I'm excited for you. Congratulations. And today I, I want to learn your story, how you've done it and how, you know, the goal here would be on this episode for the listeners to really be able to walk away and understand self-storage. So, um, Joe, I guess uh, before we learn a little bit more about you, tell us a little what is self-storage? Like, how does this work? Why is that so exciting? And then we'll learn a little bit about you as well. Yeah, I mean, self-storage is a, it's, it's, it's an enigma in the commercial real estate sector. It's very, it's interesting because, um, you know, I came from the uh, fix and flip single family house world, like when HGTV was doing all the flip shows. And like, I always say self-storage is not sexy, you know, single family is sexy. People love seeing kitchens go in and renovations and additions and stuff like that happen. But, um, you know, self-storage is just concrete, steel and asphalt you know, we're renting boxes, but what makes it sexy is the numbers. What makes it sexy is the ability to build it in a pretty expedient way where it's a very simplistic project. It might be a big project. We do mostly class A facilities. They're usually 80 to 120,000 square foot or above. Um, but again, it's just concrete and steel. They're just big boxes and there's not a lot of moving parts. There's not a lot of, you know, deferred maintenance items. You know, you're talking two toilets and a hundred thousand square foot facility. Uh, you're not talking kitchens and tile and paint and trim and carpet and all that type of thing to pick out. You know, it's kind of like you design what you want as your brand, um, you know, uh, design is your development design. And then you kind of run with it. Then it's kind of cut and paste. Ah, interesting. How many have you done now? How many self-storage deals would you say you've done? We just closed on our 14th deal, 13th deal on Friday. Wow. That's awesome. Like, so it, are you kind of pacing at one a year or is that kind of the... Been in the business uh, about three and a half, four years. The goal is to do 110 years. And, uh, you know, we're actually, even though the math doesn't sound like it works out, we're actually on pace because when we started out, it was like three of the first, you know, two of the first year, I think four of the second year. Now we just did, you know, 11 or whatever, 10 or 11 this last 12 months. And, wow. you know, we're on pace to really be able to develop 20 to 25 a year uh, in the next two or three years. So it'll really start to ramp up towards the end of that 10 year. That's incredible, man. Um, so I heard 15 years. I get it now. You've been doing self-storage for four, or three and a half or four, but just self-storage for four years. Yeah. Before that, I was flipping houses. We did about a thousand single family fix and flips in the first 12 years um, in business. Wow. And and I, you know, truthfully, I just made the adjustment because we were starting to get burnt out. And, you know, single family is so transactional. You know, every week it's like you're waiting for closings to hit. Money's coming in. Money's coming out. I had a massive team. I had about 45 people in, 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 in my direct employee. We had hundreds of subcontractors. 
and it was just becoming such a juggernaut and the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. You know, now we're able to do 10 times the amount of volume, just about 10 times the amount of profit. And we have a quarter of the amount of employees on staff to do the same amount of work. So it's really just exacerbating what we used to be good at into a bigger platform. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Amazing. So, so that, that's really impressive um, to be able to do that many. So tell us about, I guess, let's go back a little bit. You're in the Navy where even in the Navy, you said you were doing kind of like you were on the building side. What got you into real estate? Was it your experience with Navy? Like how, how did you get into real estate to begin with? Yeah, it was funny. I was probably uh, one of those like uh, three ring binder um, you know, uh, study at home courses back in the day. Cause when I was a teenager, I just, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. My dad was the first entrepreneur of my family. He was actually a drywall contractor. I grew up on the job site, like construction was in my veins. I love building stuff. I love creating stuff. And, you know, I knew when I was a kid, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I think my dream was to kind of take over my dad's business. But then I also knew that most millionaires back then, you know, where'd they all get their money from? They started in real estate. So I used to do all these like at-home courses in real estate and I kind of knew I'd kind of end up in it one day. Um, and lucky enough, you know, we got into real estate and ended up kind of working with my dad. He was our GC for a couple of years. And then I ended up buying his company out, retiring him uh, as we were in the process of growth and ramping up the, uh, the single family world. Um, and we, like I said, it was, it, was a, it was a really rewarding career. It taught me a ton about marketing, direct mail, direct to seller sales, finding off market deals, uh, you know, all kinds of those niches that is interesting when we transferred into self-storage nobody was doing it that way. And so like, I didn't just start asking around, you know, how are you guys doing it? We just did it the way we, we, we thought was the right way. And it turns out we've kind of created a real blue ocean strategy in the self-storage world, finding off-market land and off-market deals. All right. Well, we're going to talk a lot about, a lot about that. Um, I'll dive right into it and some, some objections that I have in my mind. And I think that a lot of people will have first and foremost, I feel like in 2019, my wife and I actually went to this event with Brad Sumrock to learn about multifamily. It was a lot of fun. We learned a lot. We've been able to invest in other syndications, done very well. But to me, it felt like the minute we went to the event after that, everybody was talking about multifamily and everybody's doing multifamily. Cap rates start to come down. It's get competitive. And I feel like lately that getting the same feeling with self-storage. I feel like everyone's talking about it. Um, you know, so the first objection that come to my that comes to my mind is how do you find deals? Like there's a lot of people out there. We got we're we're up against Joe's and Joe Joe has got experience, wants to do 100 deals in 10 years, and um, then there comes along a little old person who wants to get into it. So for people listening right now, how do you what do you suggest to someone? I know you run a mastermind in this. I'm sure you get this question all the time. How do people start? Yeah. Well, it's actually funny. You know how they always say like adversity is the seed of opportunity, right? Like you, you run into these walls and you're like, well, how do I, you know, course correct and figure out a way through this obstacle? You know, one of the pieces that, you know, it's a numbers game when you're trying to find off market deals and you're, find, you're finding pieces of land, you're doing due diligence, you're underwriting, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes into making a deal make sense, especially when you're talking about a $20 million deal, you know, when you buy a house, like, you know, you can walk through a house with a pen and a notepad and, you know, throw together a budget and I'm the underwriter, you know, I'm like the judge, the jury and the execution. I walk in a house and I'm buying it. You know, I don't, nobody else, I don't need anybody else's opinion. In the storage world, there's 20 or 30 people on our team that get their hands in that deal and basically bless it or give it their thumbs up before we even consider buying it. And mm -hmm. so in order to create enough volume for those guys to underwrite, to, to figure out the right deals, we ended up creating a community of people, we call them certified field agents. And what I did was I essentially taught people how to find deals with our proprietary structure, the way we go out and, and source deals. And then they put them into a pipeline. My team underwrites them. 
And then those folks get paid a piece of the fee of the front side and a piece of the equity on the deal. And so for most of them, they're getting anywhere between 30 and 40,000 cash when the deal closes and somewhere between 250 and 300,000 in equity when the deal is stabilized. So by, by virtue of creating these CFAs, I'm taking people who have you know, no real estate experience and I'm teaching them how to find you know, multi-million dollar investment deals. And then they get a piece of the action for, for going out there and putting the work in and, and finding those deals. Awesome. It's smart. Now, so when you are looking for these, because I've heard you say it a couple of times, are you getting, are you, when you say you're finding an off-market deal, you're actually finding an already pre-built one that's up and functional and you buy that? No, I, my takeaway is I think you're actually going just getting plotted land and putting the thing up. So can you talk through that a little bit? Yeah, we really have three different strategies. One is ground up development, which is kind of our bread and butter. That's my background, my business partner's background. We've always been in construction. That's where we're really, we feel really confident because we, we know construction really, really well. Um, but the second piece of that is big box conversions. You know, the self-storage industry is really shifting dramatically. And going back to, I don't want to forget your part about the apartments again, because I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But we're shifting now as an industry out of, you know, self-storage used to be like down the industrial dirt, dark road, you know, in the industrial park where, you know, maybe the fence was falling down and, you know, it was hard to access. People want self-storage now to be in the, you know, Main Street America. They want to be well lit. They want to be well secured. They want to feel comfortable pulling in the parking lot. You know, there's a lot of statistics that say 65% of our users are female. A lot of them are single females. They don't want to have to bring a bodyguard to go get their stuff out of storage. They want to be able to pull off a of main street, feel comfortable, feel like they're not going to get attacked when they go empty their locker, you know, get back to their car and leave. And so what's happening is it kind of with the birth of e-com and the, and the down the downplay of big box, you know, they're disappearing. Sears is gone. Kmart's gone. Circuit City's not coming back. Right. And, and these municipalities need a reason to fill those storefronts. They need something to go in there. There's not, there, you know, Pier 1, you know, last year. And so now we can go make that play, tell that story to those local zoning boards and say, hey, would you rather have a darkened big box or would you rather have us converted into self-storage? So there's a lot of um, ways that we're doing big box conversion in order to create opportunity, in not only in the storage space, but, you know, maybe we convert part of it to storage, part of it to retail, chop it up, all types of things. We have a, we have a development like that in New York right now. And then lastly is, uh, is value add deals, which is you know pretty standard, right? Find your small mom and pop project, try to either expand it, increase the NOI, there's deferred maintenance, maybe they need security upgrades or you know just paint and signage upgrades, marketing upgrades, management upgrades, um, and create a better deal out of that. But our end goal personally is to end up with class A facilities. So you know I want a project that's going to create 80 to 100,000 plus rentable square foot so that when we package this thing up in 15 years, I'm, you know, I got the public storage and the cube smarts and the life storage looking at us, um, you know, for purchase. Got it. So that's the goal in the end, basically take the hundred that you build and package them into one and sell it to a big public self-storage company. Um, now, does that mean you carry, are all of these hundred getting the same name? Are they carrying the same branding and same theme? No, doesn't matter. We do third-party management. I'm looking for nationwide third-party managers. So like I just named them, Extra Space, uh, CubeSmart, Life Storage. Those guys are going to end up managing it. Um, you know, one of those one of those people will take the contract. So, you know, which brings me back to the first point, which we're talking about. And, you know, is it saturated? Is the market, you know, um, is everyone in it? Is it, you know, is it going to get overbuilt? The reality of it is, um, Anik, is that 70%, 70% of all self-storage companies in the country are mom and pop. 
They're not owned by big box. They're not owned by the REITs. They're not owned by the publicly traded companies. And so, you know, five years ago, I was in that same boat that you were. I went to a good friend of mine, Tim Bratz, who, who ran Commercial Empire, huge into apartment space, bought 4,000 units in five years. I went to his training. I was sitting in that room and I was thinking to myself, man, there's a lot of people interested in this thing right now. It's going to get saturated. There's, you know, you know, 50 LOIs going out to buy one apartment building. Now, fast forward five years, it's even worse. It could be 150 LOIs to buy an apartment building. The reality of it is we're still in that position where I think self-storage is going to grow for the next five to 10 years and beyond. It has cyclically just been consistent growth for the last 40 years on the charts through all different recessions, through all different downturns. It just continues to expand and we're not there yet. Okay. So what you do right now is you go, your bread and butter, right? Because you know, we talked about three strategies. Your bread and butter is you go find the land um, that is prime for the building, get it zoned, approved, get it built. Um, and once it's built, you're saying you immediately give it to a big brand like Extra Space or any of these guys. And then it's 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 like a triple net for you then after that? Do, do they lease it for you? How does it work financially? Yeah, they handle everything management wise. I mean, there, there's obviously a fee, you know, percentage of your NOI that goes to them for, for uh, managing the facility. Um, they put, they hire, they fire, they put people in place, they manage the facility, they ramp it up. Um, I think one of the biggest uh, contributing factors to, to using them is that their marketing technology and lead gen is leaps and bounds above anybody else's. I mean, these guys control the space. When you search self-storage, you're going to find one of the top five guys pop up and they're really, really good about it. You know, figuring out the rates that work, figuring out the saturation levels, getting these you know buildings what we call ramped up, right? Getting the tenants in place um, is a huge piece of what they do. And I'm not interested in competing with them. I'd rather have them on our side. I had no idea that's how it works, by the way. So I learned something new today. Like when I saw Extra Space or CubeSpart or any of these, I thought they owned that facility. I thought that they built it. It's a fr I always thought they were franchises so that there is someone who owns that franchise, like a, like a Marriott or any other franchise. But you're saying actually someone else owns it and they've just given the naming rights and the rights to run it to somebody else. And then there's just a profit share going on in the back end. And in your numbers, you have figured out that that still works. You're still super profitable. And in the end, now, does that get in the way of you selling it? So in 10 years, when you want to sell it, do you have these contracts that kind of get in the way of you selling it? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it depends on what your, how your contract, they're, they're all different. But, you know, we're actually looking at some of the sites we're selling at CO. We're selling at certificate of occupancy, right? As soon as the, as soon as we have keys to rent to tenants, we're getting offers on, on projects to buy them out. That's not really our goal. Um, but in the last, you know, six to nine months, it's gotten pretty, pretty frothy in the buyer's market for self-storage because, you know, the big, the big guys, they don't want to develop. They don't want to find spaces. They don't want to build them. They just want to take them. You know, they just want to create more um, units under management or, or um, assets under management. So, um, you know, there's a lot of them are competing at CO. But to answer your question, having a management contract in place isn't really going to keep some other competitor from buying it. They'll change the signs out front and, and they'll take it down themselves. Got it. Very fascinating. So, um, so right now, would you? So you you seem to be perfectly confident that no matter where you are in the country, at least in the United States, there's opportunities nearby to be able to to build self storage. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be smart about it. We want to be in good MSAs that are growing. We want to be in areas where the income level and the demographics substantiate. There's there's a lot of little microcosms that go into how we underwrite the deal to make sure that it's going to be successful. But, you know, my chief development officer, when I first met him a couple of years ago, and this guy's built 400 self-storage facilities, he said, Joe, you could take a, a dart and throw it at the map of the United States and be successful and build, and build a self-storage there. He said, but that's not the point. 
right? We want to find the top 10%, the top 15% of areas, locations, demographics, income levels to serve because the only difference between a really successful um, build and a, and a not so successful build is how long it takes to get the tenants in place. You know, when you spend eight to $12 million to build something, you don't want to wait two years to ramp it up. Your goal is to get it ramped up in, you know, six to 12 months. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I guess one of the objections that comes to my mind, which I'm curious to see how you address is, I live in Maryland. So I live in, you know, Rockville, Gaithersburg, Bethesda area. I don't think I've seen an empty plot of land in this area in the last like 10 years that I've lived here, unless you really drive. So in that situation, but, but if we go 20, 30 minutes one direction of the highway when we go south now you've got a lot of developing communities and up and coming so is that kind of that's if you lived here you're not necessarily looking in the city that's already been highly developed and competitive you're willing to drive out 30 minutes to an hour to the developing communities where people are moving yeah well i have to have at least so many people in a three mile radius to make it make sense but if I'm in a community, for example, like you said, where, you know, we have a place in, uh, in Houston, Texas, where they have a 15,000 home community was approved across the street from our project, right? So the demographics right now make sense. I'm always going to underwrite on today's numbers. But of course, that's that's obvious upside for us in five to 10 years when those houses get built and occupied and people are moving in, moving out. You know, movement is what creates traction for self-storage. You know, 65%, 70% of people putting their stuff in storage are moving. They're either upsizing, downsizing. You know, during during the uh, the 08 09 crisis, it was huge because people were short selling their house. They were moving from 4,000 square foot to 2,000 square foot, but they don't get rid of their stuff, right? So yeah, their mortgage got a whole lot cheaper, but I'll go rent a self storage for 150 bucks a month until I get back on my feet and I get back in the 4,000 square foot house. I'm going to keep myself and my stuff in storage. So movement creates opportunity for us. And so I want to be where people are moving in, out, up and down. No, I get that. You said there should be X number of people in a three mile radius. You were really specific about three mile radius. What What is the number of people that you usually look for? So we have a rule. It's called the 60-60-23 rule. And, and what that looks like is I want 60,000 people. I want 60,000 median income. And I want $20 per foot on a climate controlled unit. So on a 10 by 10 climate control, that works out to be like $168 a month. If, if the competitors in that three mile radius are getting $168 or better, then that's probably an area that you want to be in because it's commanding you know, high value for the unit. Um, that's going to change drastically depending on where you look. You know, if you're in New York City, a 10 by 10 might cost you $700 a month. You know, if you're in you know, somewhere in Missouri, it might, might be 75 bucks. I don't know. But, you know, we're looking at areas where we can command at least 20 bucks a foot. Got it. So 60,000 people in a three mile radius making at least $60,000 a year on average and a $20 per square foot uh, cost to rent a climate controlled. And so just for everyone else's interest there, climate you can have stores that's climate controlled and not. Obviously, the ones that are not climate controlled are easier to build, cheaper to build, but may not command as much revenue as the ones that are climate controlled. Um, very interesting. Well, that was a huge piece of nugget right there too. What are some of the top markets that you guys are looking at right now where you're building? Like, are you, so you said you want to build a hundred. Have you already, have you already kind of pinpointed these are the markets we're going to build these hundred in and that's it? Um, you know, I think we probably, we probably really hammer down on 10 of them where we're going to be focused on. But I, I, I do think that there's going to be, you know, right now we're Texas and East. We're from Texas to the Atlantic. We're in Ohio, Pennsylvania, Ohio, uh, New York, New Jersey, uh, Florida, and Texas. And, you know, the Northeast states, 
they were kind of like outliers. We got really good deals at a good timing and they're in good areas near universities and things like that. But I think our focus going forward is going to be more Southeast. Um, you know, the Florida markets are crazy right now. There's great places in Texas. A lot of people are moving to Texas. Um, and then, you know, this, the, actually the Southeast as well, you know, we're looking in, you know, New Mexico and Arizona, there's some great markets out there. So, I, you know, if you had to put a target on it, I would say more Southern, but you know, there's still great markets all over the place. And are you finding, um, how come you picked the sweet spot of, cause you said something to me, you're like, oh, well, most of ours are between 20, 25 million. What's the thought process behind that? I just want class A sites, right? So I, that means I have to be 100,000 square foot roughly. Um, and that's generally what they're going to work out to after the NOI, you know, depending on what, you know, what kind of the numbers they're drawing. Um, but again, and, and really going back to the, the 60, 60, 23, I should put a little asterisk next to that. That's our, you know, that's our strategy. That, that might not be everybody's strategy. You know, if you're buying a 30,000 square foot mom and pop in Oklahoma, it's not going to meet those, those, those numbers. Right. But we really just kind of pinpointed what works for us. And those numbers really work for us. They don't have to be exact. It might be 45,000 in income and 75,000 people in a, in a three mile radius. But as long as like two out of three hit the box, we're going to look at that deal. Got it. And um, so I, I see the areas that you're in. I'm trying to just think real quick. So what is the um, God? I had a great question. I just completely left my mind. I hate that when, when that happens. Um, I guess uh, one of the questions that I have about finding deals, right? So let's say I come to you today. I know that you have a mastermind where you teach this. So I'm like, and, and so let's say I'm actually saying this. Hey, here I am, Joe, genuine question. Um, I have, I know the question I was going to ask. Let me ask that first and I'll come back to this one. Yeah, yeah. 23 million, how do you raise that capital? How much of that is cash out of Joe's pocket? What does the money look like? Do banks love this? Like break down the financials because someone's listening right now. They're like, oh, $23 million. Where the hell am I going to do this from? Yeah. So what does that look like? Remember, 23 million is what they're worth when they're done, right? So we're generally 60 cents on the dollar uh, okay. for cost cost to, uh, to to value what it's done. And so, you know, we have a deal right now. We're wrapping up. It's about, we're about 12 million into the deal. It's probably worth 20, 21, something like that. Um, you know, we're raising, if we're doing 12 million into the deal, uh, we're probably raising three, three and a half to do that deal. We're getting that off equity. We're giving out 30% equity generally to the investors. And when I give out equity, I love to do it in perpetuity. And, and the reason I do that is I want people to build lifelong relationships with us. You know, most syndications, or I say a lot of syndications, shouldn't say most, um, they'll kind of kick out the equity partners once the deal is stabilized and they refinance and everybody gets their money back. Um, I want to do that. I want to give everybody's money back. I want to give them their refinance proceeds. And then I want to leave them equity so that when I sell that deal in a couple of years, they're going to get a big fat check in the mail. And, and I do that because I want people to want to grow with us. You know, I really look at our investors as, even though they're LPs, I look at them as partners. You know, I look at them as people that have helped us get to where we want to get to. And, you know, therefore I want to, you know, continue that equity in perpetuity. So, um, you know, like I said, we'll give out 30, 35% equity generally. We'll, we'll, um, we'll keep 65 to 70. Um, we'll do all the sponsorship, the GP, the KP, um, and then um, we'll get debt for the rest of it. So we'll go to a bank, we'll get construction loans in the project. And, you know, obviously we'll draw and finish them up at that point. Got it. So if you need about 12 million into the deal, you can raise about three, three and a half million of that from investors. The rest of it gets from a bank. So, and then you and your business partners or your company really walks away with about 65-ish percent ownership in the facility. And you didn't necessarily put any cash out of pocket per se. No, yes and no. I mean, it, we have a lot of due diligence, time and effort, money involved in the front end of things. And then, of course, we're also going to float, you know, if there's construction draws and payments. So we do have a lot of money out of pocket in the deals. We just don't, you know, we don't, we don't 
say we do or to, you know talk sure. about you know, there's not a specific value number but i would say it's anywhere between 500 and 750 on each deal is is out of cash out of our pocket doing the deals so so uh, again now objections right because i like i like working off of objections. this is the first interview i've ever done where i'm like oh let's base it off of pure mental objections coming to my mind three three and a half million to raise is no is no joke for someone who doesn't have a a huge network of individuals that are you know ready to give them a ton of money how much was your first one like, what was the value of the first one you bought? Have you rolled up slowly, like as you've done those 13, 14 deals? No, we jumped right into a we jumped right into a deal that was uh, basically a Class A facility, and so I think the purchase price of land was one point four. I think the total raise was something like uh, I'm sorry, the total expense was something like ten, and we raised three, something like that. You know, okay. um, and yeah, and and the first one was absolutely brutal. Like for for people that don't do private equity, don't do private money. I mean, I built my single family business off private money. Right. But I never needed three million dollars. I needed three hundred thousand dollars. Right. So, yeah. you know, essentially I was OK with those conversations. The things that made it more difficult for me was, you know, back in the day, it was me and you. You were buddy. Me and you were buddies. And I was like, yo, Anik, can I borrow 300 grand? I'll flip a house. I'll give you X, Y, Z return. You'd be like, here's a check. No problem. Now you, you level into a syndication. I mean, you know, we're SEC qualified. We're only dealing with accredited investors. There's 200 pages of documents to sign before you can lend the money. So it's just a little bit more complicated. But I think once you experience it and you understand it, it kind of takes the, the complication out of it. Yeah. So that first the first deal you did, the three million that you needed to raise, did you end up just already having a network of people because you were doing single family for so long? Or did you start a brand new campaign to raise money for it? Um, how did you raise that money? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a grinder. Like, I mean, I, I I smiled and dialed for for six months. I called everybody, every person I knew. I mean, I think we probably, I'd say a third of that came from from people that were existing clients. And I'd say we lost a lot. And it's funny because, you know, people want you to see a proven model. All of my private lenders from the single family world were kind of hesitant because they're like, dude, you never built a self-storage before. You want to take my, even though I've been borrowing their money for years yeah. and now full circle, they're like, hey, would you take my money, put it, you know, put it in the next deal. So, you know, you, you have to cut your teeth somewhere, right? And I, you know, we, we made a lot of, uh, conversations happen. I ended up um, partnering with one of my JV. Uh, well, he's a GP equity owner, but he helped us raise a little bit of the money. We gave him some GP equity on the first deal for getting us in front of some people. Um, and, you know, you do what you got to do to make a deal work. You know, I think that's the important factor. And one of the reasons why I love the syndication model that we have is because it, it allows you the leeway and, and the ability to do that. Right. Like if I want to, you know, JV partner with somebody who's going to, you know, create GP equity or has people they can bring on. Like I have some equity to give away. If I if I did the traditional syndication and I, I kept 20 and gave away 80, I wouldn't have any leeway to go out and, you know, raise more money or, you know, give people equity shares or anything like that. So this this really gives us a lot more flexibility. And I would rather sell away equity and do more deals than to have nothing to sell and then get stuck. Yeah. No, it's, that's, that's fascinating. Very interesting. And the reason I ask is, right, because um, I think you know, and we've talked about this before, where I'm like, I'm really interested. I don't have a self-storage yet, but my wife and I, we do a lot of triple net investing. So we have commercial properties that we own, and we've done a little bit of the short um, short rentals. But I, I am fascinated by storage because of how, like you said, I liked your example, two bathrooms per 100,000 square feet. That sounds impressive. No clogged toilets all the time. So management fees are less it's just less headache. Um, went to a storage the other day. I myself went to a storage the other day to pick up my stuff and um, was laughing because half the things in that storage I don't need, but I keep them because of human nature. Um, but there was there was one employee on site. And so I was just walking past him and I just happened to ask him. I said, hey, it's a big storage facility. It's 
in a prime area. And I said, how many of you work at one time? And he was like, it's just me. And I, I was fascinated. I'm like, I, I can't even imagine how much revenue this place is pulling. It's like four or five stories high, climate controlled, beautiful, well-maintained in a nice area. And it's just one person running it actively. The human capital of it was like, dude, that, that, that's, that's awesome. So, so a great story. Well, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, go for it, please. I was going to say, I got a great story about that. One of our investors, he's a heart surgeon and he called me up. He's probably the quickest investor I've ever had in my life. He was referred by somebody, which always helps, but he gets on the phone and, uh, you know, I introduce myself. We do this, the whole thing. And he goes, I got to tell you a story. He goes, I'm going to tell you why I'm going to invest in you. And I was like, wow, I haven't even pitched anything. I haven't even told you what the investment is, right? And he goes, 12 years ago, my ex-wife died. He goes, my two, my two sons were in college at the time and I told them, I will pay for your mom's stuff in storage for five years. After five years, you guys split the bill. You figure it out. It's on you. Um, you know, it was his ex-wife. It was, you know, the kids' stuff that they inherited, right? He goes, that was 12 years ago. He goes, my kids have been spending for seven years splitting that bill every single month. He goes, Joe, I guarantee you neither one of them has ever gone in that unit in 12 years. There's probably three inches of dust on top of it. But that's the reality. Like, we're just so married to our stuff and, you know, grandmom's, furniture or mom's stuff like you're just not going to throw it away yeah no no that's true very much so it makes sense so um so let's now go to the question i was gonna ask you so i here i am i'm ready man um i'm like okay joe i want to do this i want to go find a plot of land i want to do it here locally in my area and you know what i'll raise the money for it too like i'll do though i'll go the whole nine yards um i know you have a mastermind so if i came to you and said that what do you have do you have a program that you say plug in here and out comes the other side on it you know, the self-storage guy, or how do you got, how do you train people to do that? Or, Hey, no, that's not really our thing. We just train people on how to find deals for us. Like what's your, what's the training side of your business? No, it's actually, it's a true, so we call it the storage syndicate, right? And like, you know, if you throw back to what a syndicate is from, you know, a hundred years ago, it was when all the like mafia bosses got together and they were all kind of competitive, but at the same time they needed each other, right? They were like, you know, you take the waste management contract, I'll take the contract, concrete contract and, you know, and but they all grew together, like they all came together to grow together. And, And that's really what I look at as our mastermind, our syndicate is there are people from all walks of life. There are people who've never done real estate, There are accredited investors who are just looking to build relationships to give people money. There are experienced developers who maybe have never built a self-storage and want to transition from single family or wholesale or some other apartment structure into into self-storage. And then we have really advanced developers who have built hundreds of facilities. Then we have the contractors that support them, right? So we have our our steel guys and our design uh, teams and our architectural teams. And so we have the whole gamut of people under that roof. The whole concept is whatever you bring to the table, we can fill in the gap, right? So if you're great at raising money, then you know we'll find a way to get GP equity for you. If you're great at developing something and you need your handheld on your first self-storage deal, we'll trade equity for time. If you're great at you know whatever, you bring something to the table, there are other people under that roof who probably need you. And so creating those relationships is what's so interesting. You know, last week we sold two deals to two separate Canadians who it was the first time they'd ever built a self-storage, first time they'd ever um, developed in the US and they both bought a deal last week. There's a whole lot of, you know, circus acts that go into doing that, you know, writing different PPMs and it it meets Canadian rules and US rules and US money coming or Canadian money coming into the US and there's, you know, all that. So our team basically orchestrated all that so these guys could get into their first deal. And 
you know, they went out and raised the money, but they'll end up using our team and working with our design and, and my business partner, you know, their construction calls are our construction calls. So we'll literally help them kind of, kind of handhold them. They're still responsible. They're still GPs. It's still their project. You know, we've taken a small sliver of the equity, but we'll help them get across the finish line and build, build their first facility. No, that's awesome. No. And, 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 um, I think it's really smart to do it that way because everyone has something they bring to the table. Um, and for me, it's, yeah, you're right. I'd probably, raising money would probably be the thing that comes easiest to me. But the idea right now of finding the deal, doing all of that work, it's not exciting to me. So it's, it's, it is, ex- yeah, it's somewhat, <laughs> you're like, it's not, yeah. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a lot of work, but hey, getting a deal, it's in front of me and saying seven people have already signed off on it. This is good to go. Anik, we, we need $3 million. I'm like, on it. <laughs> you know, I got my phone. Let's do it. You know, like I, I'll be like, give me an hour. I'll be back. Um, I think that's kind of as well as I do that. Some people are terrified of that. Right. Yeah. They're like, man, I can do all the rest of it, but don't ask me to raise money. I can't have those conversations. That's scary to me. So it's like, yeah. what is our what is our highest and best use? What's our unique ability? Well, let's work together to figure out how to help each other, you know, continue yeah. to grow. No, it's brilliant. I love it. Very smart. Um, so self-storage has been, and it seems like that's your, that's the, the, the wagon you've hitched onto next, you know, how many ever years, 10 years, you'll be doing all self-storage. You said, doesn't matter if people are coming into it at a, well, the other thing I find interesting is that, um, because I found this with triple net. So you tell me if the comparison is somewhat similar, same thing happened with triple net. Everybody's coming into it now. And, um, because especially as the economy starts to go a little bit slower, it's nice to park your money with these big corporations that'll pay you and cap rates fall and banks start to not lend as much. So I was talking about this with my wife where I'm like, wow, triple net's not been that interesting. We haven't made an investment about a year, year and a half. And I'm like, I don't really worry well, about a year. I'm like, I'm not really liking anything. And so all of a sudden I was talking to a triple net expert and he says, yeah, because you're doing too small of deals. You're looking at properties that are a couple million each. So is every other retail investor out there that has a little money. Once you kind of cross that 10 million, he goes, the sweet spot he told us, for at least for triple net, is he said, it's somewhere in that like eight to 20, 25 million. And the reason he said that's the sweet spot is because that number is too too big for retail investors like mom and pops who want to pop a couple but million dollars and save it but too small for hedge funds <laughs> he's like the hedge funds don't want it they want hundred million dollar deals so you're only really competing against family offices and you're only really competing against really wealthy or family offices that actually like triple net so it's like a much smaller sliver and i found that fascinating and of course i was like well yeah that means i have to raise money but do you find that not to the numbers, but is that kind of another reason to be in that 20s? Is it just less competitive in that area? Listen, I, I think I think that works in like every almost every atmosphere, right? Like when I was doing multifamily, I would look at 15 to 30 unit buildings, right? Because 15 is too big for most little guys that are starting out. And, and 30 is way too small for, you know, I forget the name of the guy you mentioned earlier, but Tim Bratz and these, these huge multifamily syndicators that are buying 200 units. They're not looking at 50, right? So yeah. it was like this this nice little gap where I could like cherry pick these deals. I think we all need to just figure out what's our sweet spot and just focus on that. Like, you know, I've had people ask me all the time, like, how would you buy a 30,000 square foot site? I couldn't tell you. I don't know. I don't know the parameters. I don't know what works. I don't know what doesn't, I don't, you know, I'm only looking at a site like that. If I can add 70,000 square foot next door, cause there's extra land, you know what yeah. I mean? So I think once we kind of pigeonhole ourselves into what we're good at, then, you know, you kind of put the blinders on and just go. Yeah. 
No, that makes perfect sense. So what does a return for an LP look like? Let's say I come to you today, I give you a hundred thousand, you're raising, you know, money to build a facility that's eventually, so let's say it's going to cost you 12 million to build it. You ex expect it to be 20 plus million when it's done. And I give you a hundred thousand dollars today, right? How does that play out? Cause I'm going to guess for a while, there's no cash flow on it just cause there's nothing out there. Like, how does it work? If you're, if you're pitching an LP, yeah. So for starters, it's, it, there's, there's going to be a pref on it. It's usually eight to 10 on the pref. We do pay monthly. When we take the money up front, we actually create a reserve fund for interest for three years. So I have enough money to pay. I actually over borrow it to pay interest reserves so that everyone's getting okay. paid monthly. I found that, you know, whether or not it's psychological or whatever it looks like, you know, investors like to get money every month and they like to know that there's checks coming in. And it's really hard to explain to somebody that you're going to give me a hundred grand and I'm going to give you 200 grand, three years from now, you know, I'd rather, you know, generally people want to see, you know, monthly, monthly payments come in. Uh, our target uh, goal is generally between like 14 and 18%, but that's super conservative. You know, we're selling a deal right now where, you know, when all the numbers come together, knock on wood, our return is going to be somewhere at 28 to 35%. And that's per year for three years for our investors. Uh, they're not all like that. And, and, and by the way, I guess we should put an asterisk on it. It has to, you have to be accredited. We can't even have this conversation unless you're accredited. I mean, we're SEC, you know, um, monitored and all that kind of good stuff, but you know, that's typically what it looks like. I want to see my investors make somewhere between that 14 and 18%. I think it's a sweet spot, but keep in mind, that's, pre that's pre equity or you know it's pre um not pre equity but you get all that money back you keep your equity so so we're trying to give the entire capital back in that first three-year period um and then you know obviously they retain cash flow that percentage of ownership and they retain percentage of equity long long term what, what i love about what you're doing is it's got all the check boxes right so you got some cash flow coming in right away you can actually get your cash back that you put in within a few years or at least a large portion of it um and you get to keep the cash flow part of the equity until it sells. And then when it sells, you get you get more equity. It's actually like four different ways to monetize or to get money out of one investment. It's, it's funny. That's actually how like, I tell people, the investors, you get paid four ways in here. Yeah. And, you know, that's, and, it's, and it's exactly like, oh, right. Man, see, I can do your pitch for you. <laughs> I'm, re I'm, ready to ra I'm ready to raise money. I already got there. Like, yeah, it's four different ways to make money. Um, it's, it's really, uh, it's smart. It's, and it's pretty fascinating to me that you would, yeah, obviously, cause you're right with a lot of the multifamilies, once the refi happens, goodbye, Tata, thank you very much. You leave all that amazing equity with the, which is good for them. I mean, I mean, I've never complained. It's like, okay, I got what I got, but with you staying in, you're right. People will keep, what are they going to do with the money when you return it to them in three years? We're going to park it right back with you and say, go ahead and invest it again. And here's the thing, Anik, I did this for 12 years in the single family world and I kind of felt dirty. Like I would just borrow your money, pay you 10% and then sell the house and give you your money back. And it was like, what are you going to do with it? I'll oh, give it back to me again. And I would just rinse and repeat. And so we yeah. built this new company. We call it Legacy Developers. It's we. I truly want to build legacy wealth with my investors and with my team. So all of the main players on my team have equity share and or um, uh, cash bonus based on performance. So when we hit milestones, they get paid. When we hit milestones, they get equity. You know, we had a couple guys on our team that have that have created a million dollars in net worth in the first two years working with us. You know, and the whole point of that is you're going to be a piece of this action. You know, you're going to put your blood, sweat, and tears in. I don't want to just give you a paycheck. I want to create wealth with you. Yeah, no, that's epic. That's awesome. Um, I, I really don't have any other questions at the moment. I understand the grand scheme of things. Like, I like it, and the reason I'm thinking about it myself is just like, hey, I want to see where I, where I plug into that. But I like how you treat your LPs. And anyone who's wondering, LT, LPs are limited partners, so it's but the passive guys. It's the the money people. They give the money and then they go away. Hopefully, um, here's a question. All right, I'm gonna put you on the spot a little bit. 
in the last in in how many ever stealth stores deals have you done has anything gone south have you lost pants on anything all the time yeah so you know our first site um is probably going to be delivered after our second and third site like when we bought our first one it was right before COVID, and so it took us almost 18 months to get approvals to build the project um on a three-year ppm so you know i always tell people like it's construction there's risk all over the place you know we got supply chain issues material issues labor issues you know we're we're constantly trying to stay ahead of it but then there's certain things that like you just can't fix. You know, I'm waiting on three fire hydrants for a project right now. They gave me a 14 month lead time. It's this special like fire hydrant because the local, the municipality does, what do they call lefty loosey, righty tighty. These fire hydrants go the other way, right? So we're calling all the like, like the suppliers around the country and they're like, dude, we don't have those. Like we're gonna have to put an order and they're gonna have to make them for you. It's gonna take 12 months, 14 months to get them. So like no matter how many times you try to like stay ahead of problems, like I say, our, our team is professional problem solvers. That's all we do all day long. Every day something happens and we fix it. You know, so um, so yeah, I mean, there's there's issues all the time. I think anybody that's doing massive commercial construction and says there's no issues, they're just they're lying. It's it's not. Well, hey, listen, we have triple net deals that are guaranteed income from very large corporations. Um, and yeah, they, 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 we have issues, <laughs> like we have issues. And thankfully I always say if my wife didn't manage that and she actually enjoys it, bless her. I don't know why. Um, I couldn't do it. I wouldn't do real estate. I would, I would literally only do LP because I suck at that. Like I'm not going to track it. It's not my thing. Um, but what I guess what I meant more was you haven't had a deal go south yet where the investors lost all their capital or anything like that. It's just delays and little issues here and there, but knock on wood the way we build it yeah the way we create it um you know the the entitled land as soon as we get permits is worth a lot more than than what we have into it so you know like i said knock on wood i don't you know we're, we're pretty well insulated on making sure we're in the right spot the right municipality the right area the right approvals um and the right team you know i, I look at my job as like i'm not i'm not a develop i'm not out there on the on the job site building the project i want to find the best people and we have some of the absolute best people in the industry. I mean, I might have done 12 deals, but most of my team has done hundreds of deals. And that's that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for guys that have massive experience in the game and they know the contacts to solve problems and they can get things done. That's brilliant, man. Well, listen, Joe, there, we could talk about this for a long time. And I think what I'm going to do is we're, we're meeting soon. We're going to meet face to face. I'm sure I'm going to talk to you much more about this. And uh, one of these days I'm going to crack my nut and go actually do something. So uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about when I start trying to do it. But I can already tell most likely what's going to happen is I'm going to come to you and say, is there a good deal? Let me do the raise. <laughs> I don't want to do all the other hard work on it um but where can people go to learn more about your syndicate learn more about what you're doing possibly if they're credited give you some money where can they go to learn more about you yeah there's two places um if they're interested in the mastermind itself they can go to storage syndicate.com storage syndicate.com and then um you know if they want to get in contact with me or they want to deal with uh private money or lending or that kind of thing they can see our deals at investwithlegacy.com investwithlegacy.com got it well Thank you very much. It's been awesome. To the rest of you, you guys know what to do. Make sure you click that subscribe button. Leave me a comment below and onicpodcast.com to binge listen to all of our other epic episodes. Joe, thanks so much for being here. What an awesome and informative session and congrats on all your success. And to the rest of you, get off your butts and go do something. Come on, Joe's kicking our butts here. Let's go chase him, all right? Make something happen. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Fighting Entrepreneur with your host, Onyx Singal. 